content warning. This episode discusses violent crime, including homicide, the criminal justice system, natural disasters, racism, and police brutality against unarmed black civilians. In August 2005, Hurricane Katrina, a devastating Category 5 Atlantic hurricane, made landfall on the Gulf Coast of the United States. In the city of New Orleans, protective land barriers called levees broke under the storm surge, causing up to 80% or more of the city to be flooded. The natural disaster resulted in the deaths of more than 1,800 people. Two weeks after the storm, the remains of a man named Henry Glover were discovered in the trunk of a burned car. The autopsy report would, curiously, list no cause of death. Years later, in 2009, the case landed on the desk of a young prosecutor in the U.S. Department of Justice. That former prosecutor joins us today to tell the story of what really happened to Henry Glover, and how bringing those responsible for the death of Mr. Glover meant taking on one of the most notorious and corrupt police departments in America's history. From the New Story Company, this is The New Story Is, a podcast that explores the stories, perceptions, and ideas that have come to shape the world today as we know it. Along the way, we speak to talented guests who are championing the news stories that may shape our collective future for the good. I'm Dave Ursillo. We're joined today by Jared Fishman. He's the author of Fire on the Levee, The Murder of Henry Glover and the Search for Justice After Hurricane Katrina. Jared served for 14 years as the prosecutor in the U.S. Department of Justice, where he led some of America's most complex and high-profile civil rights prosecutions involving police misconduct, hate crimes, and human trafficking. Today, Jared is the founder and executive director of Justice Innovation Lab, an organization that designs data-informed solutions for a more equitable and effective justice system. He also serves as adjunct faculty at the George Washington University Law School and at Georgetown University. Jared's book tells the behind-the-scenes story of his investigation of the mysterious murder of Henry Glover and his years-long battle to hold the New Orleans Police Department accountable for one of the most egregious and shocking cases of police abuse in recent history. Jared, welcome to The New Story Is. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Dave. So let's go back to 2009. You're a young prosecutor for the Justice Department, and a file lands on your desk. What did you find inside, and what was it about this case that caught your attention? So when I got the case on my desk, uh, it was one of the skimpiest files I'd ever seen. It had the autopsy of a man named Henry Glover, who had, whose body had been found burned behind a levee in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. Uh, within that autopsy, there was no cause of death. Henry Glover's skull was missing uh, from the uh, gathered evidence. And very little was known. It was one of the shortest autopsies I've, I've ever seen in my career. The other thing in the file was an article by an investigative journalist named A.C. Thompson. And A.C. had been investigating uh, deaths in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina and had come across this autopsy and began trying to piece together uh, what happened uh, on Henry Glover's last day. And what he came to suggest was the last people known to have seen Henry Glover was the New Orleans Police Department. And that if anyone was going to ever get to the bottom of what happened to him, that was the first place that people needed to look. 
And so this this file and this news article catch your attention because it seems obviously like there was maybe a cover up. Um, it, it seemed very suspicious that there was no cause of death listed for the remains of a civilian uh, that were incinerated almost, I mean, quite beyond recognition. You mentioned that the, the head of the body of Henry Glover was missing. Um, and I believe it was only, you know, possible to identify the body through through DNA evidence. Um, the car was incinerated. And this, what, screams to you that this is worth looking into. Um, despite the how little evidence there was about the case, what was it that attracted you to approach this case as a young prosecutor? Well, my office was investigating a number of things happening in New Orleans. Uh, a lot of the information was being unrooted at the same time. Uh, one of my colleagues and supervisors was investigating another police shooting that took place on the Danziger Bridge in which two people were killed, uh, numerous wounded uh, by the police department. There was another uh, article written by A.C. Thompson about white vigilante groups running around New Orleans shooting black people. And so as we were reading this new information, uh, we began to think, wow, there's a lot going on here. And at the same time that I was getting interested in this case, William Tanner, who was uh, a good Samaritan who picked up a wounded Henry Glover and tried to get him help, he had also been coming into the FBI to make a complaint. And he linked up with uh, who became my partner, Special Agent Ashley Johnson, who was a rookie at the FBI. And together, both Ashley and I uh, felt that it was our responsibility to try to see if we could figure out whether or not the insinuations raised in the article were valid or not. Yeah. And so we're going to talk about... Uh how you and your partner uh, with the FBI began to kind of piece some of these stories together, trying to validate them and, and what would kind of end up starting to happen as, as the you'd peel the proverbial onion and, and start to make some connections about this case in particular. But Jared, and I wonder if this is an appropriate is an appropriate question to ask you because and I'll step back for a second to say in talking about the murder of a person, especially when we're talking about these cases in the United States today, um, unarmed Black American civilians who die at the hands of police, I feel like so much of the humanity of a person gets collapsed into the story of their death. And, and while it's, I think it's very important to bring the truth to light and figure out what happens in these situations, especially if it means preventing them in the future, it's like so much of, of who a person was gets lost and they become, you know, in just the terms we described Henry Glover here, uh, the manner of his death and, and his body being discovered erases so much of who the person was. So before we talk about the story of his death and you attempting to solve that case, can you tell us if you went on to find out anything about who Henry Glover was in life and, and what, if anything, you're in your investigation you discovered about who Henry, Henry Glover was as a person. Yeah, we looked very deeply into that. You know, Henry Glover was a 31-year-old black man living in the Algiers community in New Orleans. And for people who don't know, know New Orleans, it's on the other side of the Mississippi River from the downtown area in the French Quarter. And it was a part of the community that did not flood. Henry Glover lived in low-income um, apartments with his family. His sister, Patrice, lived nearby. His brother, Edward King, nearby. He lived with his daughter and his girlfriend. Uh, and he, when, when Hurricane Katrina came, he was in a situation where he had to say, should I leave? Uh, he had limited means. He had limited opportunities. And he decided, no, I, I don't really have anywhere I can go to, so I'm going to wait out that storm. When the storm hit, 
Uh, people thought that in Algiers thought that the city was going to come back. Henry Glover was working two jobs, supporting his family, um, trying to do the best with the tough cards that he got. And uh, in two days, four days after the storm, he finally decided that he had to get him and his family out of the out of the community. And you mentioned uh, that Henry Glover was from the Algiers neighborhood of New Orleans. So this is this is a neighborhood that was kind of isolated from the downtown New Orleans region. I understand that it didn't get flooded because of its its geographic location. Can you tell listeners about what was going on in the neighborhood for those who were living there in those few days after Hurricane Katrina? Um especially for someone like Henry Glover, who was coming to realize the extent of what was going on in the city around him. And despite having made the decision to stay, was now realizing like so many tens of thousands or more did that they had to actually evacuate after the fact because life was, the situation was not very livable in in neighborhoods like the Algiers neighborhood. What was going on on on, on the ground there uh, when people like Henry Glover were making decisions to try to get resources and get their families out. It was, I mean, the, the description that most of the people that I met with over the time, would talked about it as a, as a ghost town. So this part of town is literally cut off from the other side of the river by a bridge. And so information was not flowing. There was no electricity. Cell phone uh, reception was pretty terrible. So there's almost a, a, an utter lack of communications and a lack of awareness of just how bad it is on the other side of the river because they're not getting that information. They're getting rumors. They're getting stories. And the stories going around of, of mass rapes and killings, and many of them were exaggerated. But then on the other hand, you talk to Henry's family and they talk about hearing houses getting broken into all night. People were taking advantage of the situation of looting uh, and, and entering people's homes. So, so for people like Henry Glover uh, and his family and Patrice, Glover and Bernard Calloway, they begin to realize, no, it is, it's way too dangerous to live here. And yet, when you walk out on the streets, there's no one there. So it's this weird juxtaposition of, of both total emptiness and a pervasive sense of threat. Yeah. And so on the morning of September 2nd, 2005, which is just a few days after Katrina made landfall and people are navigating these bizarre circumstances of like no one being around and yet there being a lot of rumors and not a lot of resources, no no emergency response, um, or I should say, you know, FEMA relief was was not readily available and there was a series of, of failures um, despite knowledge that an incident like this could happen and was likely to happen in a place like New Orleans. Henry Glover, and I believe two others, walked out of the neighborhood, presumably to find supplies or resources and to start to make a plan uh, when they approached a nearby shopping mall, uh, which was closed at the time. And on the second floor of this shopping mall, I understand that there was an auxiliary police station on the second floor. What ended up happening on the morning of September 2nd? Henry Glover was on his way out of the city. Uh, their par- traveling party was about 12, and the only vehicle they had access to was a small Kia. And Henry Glover left his house to try to figure out how they were going to get out of the city. He wound up taking a, a truck from the Firestone nearby and was on his way back home to get uh, his family to evacuate the city when a friend said, hey, can you go back and pick up these items that we've taken for our exodus? 
and Henry, uh, who is described by everyone uh, as just a, as a kind, loving, uh, good friend of a guy, says, yeah, sure, I'll go back and get that for you. What he did not know when he returned to pick up those items was that on the second floor was this police officer with a sniper rifle. And that police officer, whose name was David Warren, who was 41 years old, uh, New Orleans police officer at the time, he was armed with his own personal weapon. This was not a police-issued weapon. Um, it was a sniper rifle, which, you know, except in cases of, I guess, SWAT use, uh, is effectively a weapon of war. Um, what happened next? Well, David Warren is there. He hears the noise. He goes out to see uh, what's happening down below, says something to the effect of, of leave now and get out. Henry uh, and his friend Bernard Calloway, who was with him, start take off running. Uh, and David Warren shot Henry Glover from about 66 feet away from the second floor balcony as Glover's running away. So Henry is badly wounded, and uh, he and his his friend are looking for help. And uh, the the Good Samaritan of the story, a, a man named William Tanner, um, is is I believe driving by, and he stops to pick up the wounded Glover and his companion and drive him to go get help. And Tanner ends up driving to a local school where I understand New Orleans Police Department had set up an emergency response kind of like station. Um, Instead of receiving aid, something very different happens. What happened to those three men? Well, as they arrive at the school, they're immediately removed from the car. They're handcuffed. Uh, the men allege that they were assaulted by police officers, all the while Henry Glover is laying in the backseat of the car, bleeding out, not getting any help. Uh, it's difficult to say whether or not Henry Glover was alive by the time he arrived at the school, but, but certainly at some point while he's there, uh, he dies in the backseat of that car. The three men, William Tanner, Henry's brother, Edward King, as well as Bernard Calloway, Henry's friend, uh, are detained and, and, and beaten while at that school. For They're there for approximately two, two and a half hours. At some point during the time they're being detained, another police officer drives off with uh, the car and with Henry Glover's body in it. And two weeks later, the, the car is eventually found. It's burnt to a crisp, uh, and the remains of Henry Glover are found inside, I believe, the trunk. Uh, the car would end up remaining there, as we learn in Fire on the Levee, would remain there in that place for years. And I also understand that uh, despite not knowing what happened to Henry Glover that day, um, except, you know, the witnesses having seen him or or alleging that he was driven off in William Tanner's car, that Glover's family, they they did get out of New Orleans for a brief time. I believe they went to Texas and they contacted the police. They filed missing persons reports and they never heard back from the New Orleans Police Department and they never were informed that his body was found and that he was dead. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, they, they make an immediate effort to try to get information. So Patrice, Henry's sister, is calling. Edna, Henry's mother, is calling. His cousin, Kwan McIntyre, all the family members are calling. And you know, they're calling places like the morgue. They're calling the, the local police precinct. And they're just getting no information at all. And so flash, flash forward to 2009, and you and your FBI uh, partner, Agent Ashley Johnson, 
you caught a break in your as you're starting to piece this this puzzle together. You're trying to get information uh, and corroborate what the family and the witnesses, um, the family of Henry Glover and witnesses like William Tanner um, have to say about this, because you're still not completely sure what's what in piecing the early puzzle uh, or the early pieces of the puzzle, I should say, together. And I understand that your partner, Ashley Johnson, caught a break. Uh, there was an anonymous source. She wouldn't even tell you who the source was. Gave you uh, a list of names, and you weren't even sure who these people were or what their roles were. One of the people on that list was one Linda Howard, who is a New Orleans police officer, um, a member of the of the department. And she was a witness to some of the events, and she was able to actually corroborate the story that Glover's loved ones had told you and told police on the day of Glover's shooting. What did Linda Howard have to say that you didn't know at this time? And why was it or how did she end up becoming your most important prosecution witness in turn? Well, I think it's vital to just to underscore how little Ashley and I knew. In a typical police investigation, mm-hmm. there are reams of paper, there are radio calls and reports and logs, and there is so much documentation. And normally when you investigate a police department, you collect whatever exists to try to get a lay of the land of at least what people are saying is happening. In this particular case, there was nothing. Uh, the men had alleged they were beaten by police, but we didn't know the name of a single police officer on the scene. Um, the the allegation that was there was that he was shot at the strip mall. We knew the police department was on that second floor, but we had no idea who those officers officers were. Normally, you would have a, a work log that talks about who's working on what hours. We didn't have that, so you know, Ashley and I really had to get a full lay of the land without our usual sense of tools. And so, not even knowing who to start talking to is a pretty big problem. When we eventually met with Linda Howard, Linda Howard was assigned at that strip mall that day, and she was assigned to work with David Warren. As you mentioned, he was a 41-year-old rookie. He was not from this district, so normally he would have served on the other side of the river, but because of the flooding, he couldn't get there. So they said, hey, just go to the one in your own community, which was the fourth district where this took place. And Linda Howard was assigned to work with David Warren that day. And she got a bad feeling from him. She didn't know this guy. She didn't like being there during these uncertain times. On their way to the strip mall, he stops by his house and he picks up even more weapons. And um, He's got this sniper rifle that she doesn't think is appropriate for, for, this, for this time period. And you also have to understand there's this divide happening within New Orleans between the people who say, this is Armageddon and we should arm ourselves to the teeth. And so it was not unusual to see people, uh, police officers carrying their personal weapons not often one of this caliber because the thing to know about this weapon is it's designed to shoot things from hundreds of uh, yards away. And David Warren himself had won shooting competition at hundreds of yards away. And, and so there is really no part for a gun like this in American policing, which just, I think, helps give the context of, of, of the way people were feeling. Linda Howard, on the other hand, says, no, I carry my Glock. The rules that existed before the storm are the rules that we need to follow as we engage with our community today. And she's assigned, she hears the noise. Um, David Warren fires the shot, she watches it. And, and when we met her, she said, This was absolutely an unjustified shooting. Yeah. And she would become a pretty inspiring source um, 
not only for the investigation, but but an inspiring character, so to speak, in reading the book. And and of course, Jared, what we're talking about this is this is these are very difficult subjects for for anybody to to be um, reading uh, and to be experiencing. They're upsetting in so many ways. For some for some listeners, they could be you know traumatizing or re-traumatizing. Um, but there are glimmers of hope. There are glimmers of light. And I mean, not the least of which, and I don't say this to butter you up, but for someone like you in your in your position to be on the ground and facing um to be facing what you were facing on the ground in terms of being a prosecutor looking into police departments where there's kind of these codes of secrecy and keeping quiet and protecting one another for you at this time how much was your own idealism or your trust and faith in the law and doing what was right how did that act as like a shield or a blanket to you while you were going walking around and and trying to get the truth out of people who may have effectively used the cover of law to commit some pretty heinous murders murders and cover them up how affecting was that for you when you were investigating cases like these and this certainly wasn't the only one that you looked into Right. I mean, you totally have to put out of your mind any personal threat or safety um, because otherwise you just couldn't do it. Listen, these allegations were so extreme. And you know, as, as we're putting it together, the thought that going through my mind is how can this possibly be true in America? How, how is there possibly a situation where these things can be true? And if it is true, then we have an obligation to figure it out. Now, my job as a prosecutor was to hold an individual accountable, and that's what we tried to do in charging police officers for their role. But looking back on it after doing this job for for 14 years, and the real reason why I wrote this book is individuals were not the only part of this problem. Things like this happen because of, of the way our system is built, the way we police our communities, the way we understand who is us, who is them, how do we treat marginalized citizens? And as I look back 15 years later on this, I think that's what matters even most about the story. Yeah, Jared, what, what I really appreciate about your book is that it's not only very gripping in that it's like a real life page turner, it's a murder mystery, um, you know, which isn't to, to downplay the seriousness of the events and the people whose lives were affected by the death of Henry Glover and in cases like this around uh, Hurricane Katrina in the aftermath. But I love how you and your co-author, Joseph Hooper, seem to like it, it deliberately weave these different threads into the book that convey the larger interconnected social issues that are expressed through the justice system, through issues with modern law enforcement, systemic discrimination and racism, um, poverty, mental health, it really kind of conveys a much broader and richer understanding for the reader about how these different issues connect to one another and then get expressed in these terrible moments of violence and loss and grief with someone like Henry Glover. Was that part of your intention in telling telling this story, not only to bring to light uh, and, and honor you know, the life of Henry Glover and his wrongful death, but to also kind of convey the larger interconnected systems that are responsible um, and, and have a hand in events like these unfolding? Yeah, I mean, one of one of my favorite comments that someone made of the book is that it's a social justice manifesto disguised as a true crime thriller. Mm. And I think that is it, because I knew what I knew about this story was that it it was interesting enough that we could bring in more readers than would typically come to this conversation. 
I knew that people would be compelled to learn about post-Katrina New Orleans. I knew people would be compelled to learn about one of the most corrupt police departments in America. I knew they like a coming of age story of a young idealistic prosecutor <laughs> trying to do what's right, right? People like those stories. Um, but the reason that we have to think through, why are we telling these stories? And for me, it's people have to learn. We've got to change the system. There are things we can do, but, but we can't only look at it through the lens of, of good guys and bad guys. The thing that began to just drive me nuts working at the Justice Department was when everyone would talk about the defendants I convicted and call them bad apples. Because, I mean, some of them were bad apples, but a lot of these were just guys operating in a terrible system. And no one ever took responsibility for that. And, and that's what we have to do. But that's a collective action problem. That's a collective problem of, of all of us, whether or not you are in law or you are in psychology or you are in business. We each have levers of power. And I think part of what we have to do societally is to mobilize those for something different. And I, and I hope this book, I, I tried to make it accessible. One of the reasons I partnered with Joe, Joe was a magazine writer for his career, wrote really great stuff in, in Vogue and Adventure Magazines, and New York Times Magazine. And that was how I wanted to tell the story so that people could follow along because you got to get to the, to the ending in order to, to know the moral of the story. And most of the time, people don't make it to the moral of the story. That's right. Yeah. So, so with that, readers are going to have to pick up Fire on the Levy to find out how the, how the, the investigation changed once Jared and, and Ashley uh, interviewed NOPD officer Linda Howard, who was their most important prosecution witness. And there are twists, there are turns, there are morals to the tale. And the story, you know, kind of lives on up into 2022 in the, in the course of the book, Jared, when you visited New Orleans for the first time um, in, in a few years um, in light of the, the pandemic and noticed the changes in the city and what was happening on the ground. Uh, but I do want to talk about that coming of age story a little bit too, you, as you described yourself um, in, in noticing how, uh, you know, the book also comes through like part memoir and you talk about your personal experiences, which I really appreciate. Uh, and we're going to talk about these systemic issues and what you're doing today with Justice Innovation Lab. For you personally, Jared, you describe yourself in the book as someone who grew up an upper middle class Jewish kid from suburban Atlanta. Now, as someone who also grew up upper middle class, um, Christian in this case, kid in in uh, Southern New England, I, I grew up with so much privilege that I was completely oblivious to the idea of civil rights as being necessary, let alone social justice issues. And I only use myself as an example because for you, it seems quite clear that civil rights and social justice were very important to you from a young age. And I wonder if that has to do with growing up in Atlanta, which held a very important role in, in the American civil rights movement, uh, or if you were exposed to ideas of social justice and civil rights as a young person in other ways. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing in my life, my, my grandparents fled Nazi control to Austria in 1938, right before the worst of the atrocities um, had, had come, and they left everything behind. And so they, they make it to America, I think, by, by 1940, and they, they have my dad. And so my dad's perspective growing up is, you know, they can come for us at any point. And, right. you know, on the other hand, there's, there's this idea, because now I'm growing up a generation later, and in the Holocaust and, and, and the atrocities and, and genocide were so deeply ingrained um, in both ways, very 
positive and also ways both very negative and traumatizing. But, but for me, this idea of never again, and it was all laced within a teaching, a social justice teaching called tikkun olam. And there's this medieval Jewish concept that says the world is broken and that we have an obligation to try to fix it. And so of all the biblical teachings that had been thrown upon me in my, my Jewish day school, I think these social justice issues really resonated with me. Now, race wasn't remotely on my mind. I didn't know any black people growing up. Um, I really looked at the world through the, through the Middle Eastern conflict. That was where I figured I wanted to make my mark. And ultimately, I wanted to try to figure out how we bring peace to that region. Uh, and it was only in, in working in war zones and eventually getting sent back to the U.S. where the parallels and, and the pitfalls to me are so obvious. And that's why I think it's so vital to, to, to work to fix them. Yeah, you mentioned you you worked in uh, in the Kosovo region uh, after after their brutal uh, war um, throughout the region, and I know as well, Jared, that earlier in your career, long before the Henry Glover case, uh, you were exposed to hundreds of cases, sometimes all at once, that gave you a look into the lives of people who you describe as, and this is a quote, people whose whose backgrounds were very different than mine. And you mentioned being a young prosecutor at the time and seeing these enormous racial socioeconomic inequities that that mar our legal system and for the first time it sounds like you were really witnessing how you know things that that we kind of uh we kind of as outsiders who aren't entrenched in the legal justice system hear about and kind of know exists, but you were seeing it firsthand. So many defendants being uh, black or Hispanic, so many defendants coming from lower income communities, so many defendants facing really low level charges for prolonged periods of time. And you as a prosecutor having to rely on the testimony of police officers in many cases who you had to take at their word and yet who whose word you know couldn't always be taken as 100% truthful. What compelled you to keep pushing on? Was it the memory and and what had been in, ingrained in you as a young uh, as a young kid uh, and the knowledge of your your family lineage and ancestry to keep pushing back against these big systemic forces, even if presumably you felt like a really small cog in the machine um, when things felt so big and overwhelming? You know, when I was when I was working in Kosovo, I was talking to a colleague of mine, and I told him I wanted to work on these systemic issues, and he says, "Listen, you're a smart kid." but you haven't done anything in life. You need to go work in a system. And I was you know, considering this, should I actually do some in the American legal system before I go to try to build other countries' legal systems? And uh, I said, all right, well, if I'm going to do this, I, I'm going to be a defense attorney because I really care about civil rights. And he looks at me and he says, if you really care about civil rights, you should be a prosecutor because they're the ones with all the power. And mm. it's absolutely true. If we want to influence a system we have to do it from a position of power and prosecutors absolutely have that power. What I was seeing when I was in the U S attorney's office in DC is everyone in there was black or Brown. It was impossible not to notice it. And, and it, you know, to the point where it's, you know, I was, I was, I was working in regions where you would have uh, undemocratic elections and it's 99% for the winner. And you're like, okay, we know that's not real. You yeah. can't get those kind of numbers. Well, you don't get 99% of the court system being black and brown with, with there out being a good explanation for why that is. And so I was seeing people whose lives were upended. Both the accused, victims of crime, our system wasn't serving them. Victims of domestic violence, they were 
calling the police for help, which was generating a case. And then it came to court and they wanted nothing to do with us. They were opting out of our system because our system provided them nothing useful. Occasionally, where there's true safety uh, implications and we need to get people out of the community, the, the, the court system did that for them. But the vast majority of the people that I were seeing in court were giving the worst possible solution to their problem, uh, the most destructive solution to their problem. Mm-hmm. And that was when I said, no, I don't want to be a part of that. Maybe I can use this power to take on the system. Maybe I can use this power to take on the police. And that's mm-hmm. how I got to be at the Justice Department, because those guys had the power and they were taking on people who violated the Constitution. They were taking on those people with power. And there was no one else who had comparable power to do it than our office at the Justice Department. Um, and you can only take on certain fights because it's limited. There's limited staff. There's limited budget. There's limited time. And so when you take on one of those cases, you want to make sure it's one of those ones that means something. Mm. And in 2020, you founded the Justice Innovation Lab. Can you tell us uh in light of all of your experiences and, and your life story, and I, I said this before we hit recording, um, uh, Jared, but I, I'm so grateful and humbled by people like you that you exist and that you do this work. I can't imagine the kind of constitution and resilience that you must have to have done this work for so long. Uh, I say that uh, as a, the extension of your career evolved into Justice Innovation Lab. I said you you founded this in 2020. Can you tell us about what JIL is and how it operates as an organization? How does JIL use what you call a collaborative data-informed approach to identify and fix harmful outcomes in criminal justice systems across the United States? Justice Innovation Lab started after my work on the murder of Walter Scott, another unarmed Black man who was killed in North Charleston, South Carolina. And I investigated and prosecuted that case. And it was arguably the biggest, most successful case of my career. A police officer was convicted. The court called it murder. He was sentenced to one of the longest sentences ever given to a police officer. And the city of of, of Charleston uh, remained calm and peaceful. And yet what really struck me about that experience was I felt empty. I felt like if I knew, I knew that during the time we investigated that case, 2,500 other people died in confrontations with the police in America. And I knew that the systems, the structures, the policies, the procedures, all of those other factors that gave rise to to Walter Scott's death beyond just the individual conduct of that officer, those things were staying in place. And and I just, like I'd reached that point where I couldn't do it anymore. I wanted to go take on the system itself. Now, I didn't know what that was because no one was doing what I wanted to do. And the prosecutor down in Charleston, South Carolina, who I got to know through that through uh, the murder of Walter Scott, she said to me, we've been collecting decisions on how my prosecutors make decisions, how they think about cases. Can we use this data to understand whether or not we're being fair, whether or not we are a part of the problem? Because like everyone else says, implicit bias, structural racism, all of these things, as, as, as people are becoming more and more aware, you, you begin to see it in places. But that begs the question, what do we do to fix it? And what I thought was really interesting about where she was coming from was she's saying, hey, can we use this data? We're generating data as a part of our case management system that lets us know what happens with a particular case. Can we look at that to figure out if we're being fair? And I said, I don't know, but let's try to figure it out. 
I'm not a data guy. I don't come from that background. I'm a prosecutor, I'm a civil rights lawyer. And so obviously I needed to find some people who knew something about data and how to think about this thoughtfully. And what we tried to do at Justice Innovation Lab was bring together all the skill sets that are necessary to actually try to solve these problems. So we've got people who have worked in the legal system for a very long time and have varying degrees of expertise, knowledge base. We have data scientists who are experts on the back end engineering. We've got analysts who are piecing together the, the uh, trying to figure out how we're going to answer these questions. We've got visualizers because once you get the answer, you need to communicate that in a way that people can, can understand. And then we've got, you know, broader comms people and we've got community advocates because if we're actually going to solve these problems, you need all of those skill sets. And so Justice Innovation Lab was built to try to see, what well, what if we put all those people together and went to a place and helped them solve their problem? Could we do it? And we've been working in Charleston to help them understand a number of problems coming in that system and helping them build the solutions to, to overcome it. There's an idea, Jared, uh, like a story, a perception that how we solve violent crimes, and there has been an uptick in violent crimes out, uh, in light of uh, COVID-19 pandemic and um, the lockdowns, um, the idea being that the, the way to solve violent crime is through more policing and less accountability. Uh, is there data to suggest that this is a falsehood? And if so, how does over-policing policies like you know the stop and frisk policies adversely affect law enforcement's ability to actually solve violent crimes and, and even deter them from happening? Well, you know, one of the primary strategies that police departments use in America to combat violent crime are what we call pretextual traffic stops. They're like the right. stops that led to the stop of Walter Scott. It was Walter Scott was stopped by the police because it had a broken taillight. And police departments believe, and they have been trained, that this is an effective way to combat violence and to discover contraband. When you look in practice of what is happening, they're recovering guns like 1% of the time, maybe, mm. maybe. They're finding other drugs, maybe two or 3% of the time. Well, what does that mean? The other 97% of people are harassed, are stopped for no reason. And, and over time, that just creates more and more illegitimacy in the community. And so those very same people are the victims of crime. Those very same people are witnesses to crime. And when, when you're engaging in this, in this practice, you're turning off the very people you need to start crime. I mean, one of the numbers I ask people who tell, whenever people talk about reform in a particular city and they want to bring up violent crime, the first question I always ask them is, what is your homicide solve rate? What is your solve rate for, for armed carjackings and armed robberies? Because the reality is the police are not solving those crimes. Most communities have a homicide solve rate of less than half. So the people who are committing the most egregious crimes and, and the most serious the violations of our public safety, they're not getting caught. But guess who we are catching? We're catching the people selling drugs on a corner because those cases are super easy. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why court systems have 50% of their cases are, are, are drug cases. Those cases are easy. If what we're talking about is taking on public safety, well, we, we need to take the hard cases. I worked on a case where a police department was routinely doing knockdown raids uh, warrant, uh, in, in the middle of the night for, for like $25 drug buys. $50 drug buys. They're knocking down um, the doors. And, and it is so dangerous to the community, to the officers, 
And so I asked him, well, what, what justifies that level of risk? Are you flipping those guys up the ladder to take down the drug kingpins? And the answer is no, that's it. That was the end of the line. We got the guy with his $25 bag. And my thought is, why are we spending these resources doing such ineffective work that is so harmful to our communities? And where I think there is space in America to have these conversations, we should be having both conversations at the same time. For, for the progressives who want less aggressive policing, we cannot, we cannot look, our, look away from the, the public safety question. But at the same time, we cannot resort to the strategies and policies that drove us through the 90s to become the incarceration capital of the world. Right. That cannot be our way forward. But I think there's a different way. And I think one of the things that we do with data, one of the things we do with bringing people to the table is, is there's a different way to talk about it. So we always ground our conversations in community values because one thing I have seen in every city in America is, is people want to live in a safe community and they would like their government to be fair. I mean, it, it's, you're hard pressed to meet people who oppose those two concepts. And, and the question is, how do we do both at the same time? And the good news, I mean, the, the bad news is our system is, is, totally, is totally wasteful at the moment. The good news is there's a lot of low-hanging fruit, mm -hmm. which means we have a place to start. And, and whatever your vision of a future world, a decarceral state, if you're an abolitionist, if you just want people to live in peace, you got to start somewhere. And, and there's enough low-hanging fruit that I think we can mobilize communities around to begin to push forward. Yeah, something I found really interesting that I learned from you, Jared, is the there's a connection between um, the element of trust between a community, uh, between civilians and law enforcement, that one of the greatest deterrents of violent crime is uh, the expectation of getting caught. With that, the trust that, that can exist between a community in cooperating and participating with law enforcement when there's a level of appropriate trust there acts as a deterrent against a lot of violent crime. But these, you know, stop and frisk policies uh, and policies like them, the pretextual traffic stops um, that are used for a variety of very low percentage and um, easy to convict crimes does so much harm to the ability of or, or for the willingness of a community, I would say probably rightfully so, to actively engage with law enforcement. Um, it really does uh, bring the systemic kind of like uh, self-fulfilling prophecy to light. Um, and, and I want to, did I, did I get that right? Just in case uh, you can clarify. Yeah. For me. Yeah. I mean, the way, the way I've been talking about it lately, right? Every society, every, every healthy society needs rules to function. I think people all agree with that. And, and the more legitimate those rules are seen by the community, the more people follow the rules willingly. If people see the rules in the system as legitimate, you look at countries around the world, you, you don't need as much enforcement because the rules are seen as legitimate. But the less legitimate those rules seem, the more you have to use enforcement if you want those rules to be followed. Mm. But the problem is the more enforcement you use, it tends to delegitimize the rules themselves. So you wind up this downward spiral where you're enforcing rules that are deemed illegitimate that are increasing the resistance to the system. And so the biggest thing that we got to do is we have to make the rules and the enforcement of those rules feel legitimate to our communities. Mm. And if people genuinely, you know, I, there's a lot of talk of the defund movement and a lot of the abolitionist state, 
Yeah, I was going to ask you that question, Jared. I was going to, sorry to interrupt. I was going to ask you what your thoughts were about the defund the police rallying cry that was central for a lot of protesters in light of the killing of of a lot of unarmed Black Americans in 2020. Follow that thought for us, please. Well, I think it was both really interesting because it drew a lot of attention. It was a very catchy slogan, but it wound up being a huge sword that that seriously crippled a, a movement that was forming. Um, mm. there, the argument is absolutely sound. We spend a ridiculous amount of money on criminal legal enforcement in America. So the question for me is not like, should we put more money to this? Like, there's plenty of money in the system. It's, it's just poorly allocated. We're not spending it on the things that can solve the problem. You know, you mentioned at, at the top of the hour, mental health. You walk into a jail or a prison in America, and you'll see anywhere from like 30 to 60% of the people with diagnosable or easily diagnosable mental health issues, because that's who we're putting in our jails and prisons. It's expensive. It is ineffective. It is inhumane. But, but that's the way our response is. That's what the police are out there. They're, they're, they are our front lines for our mental health crisis. And I can tell you, they are the worst people to be responsible for that. Mm-hmm. But they are the ones. That's who we've given that authority to. That's who we've, who we've passed it on. And a big part of when I advocate inside, inside the criminal legal system, like we, we know we are not the best people to be dealing with mental health. We know our solution is not very effective on a treating addiction. We know our solution is asinine for dealing with poverty and homelessness. That's not our tools. That's not in our toolbox. But what happens is they keep bringing them to us. And, and most prosecutors are, are faced with this dilemma. Well, this person violated the law because they did. But the solution that I've got on offer, incarceration, is a terrible solution. Mm. But what do we do? What do we do? And, one of the, and, and I hear that from people on the ground in law enforcement. They keep saying, well, give me some place to send them. Give me some place I can take them that's not jail. Mm. And, and that, is, that is the next layer. I think of, of where we're at and, and where we're trying to do work is to use things like early screening of cases to identify people in crisis, to get them to the people who can take care of people in crisis, because it's certainly not the local jail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and we're, we're quickly running out of time, Jared. Um, so I have a, just a couple questions that I want to wrap up with. Um, I've heard you say before in previous interviews and researching for our conversation today that uh, your philosophy is if people built these flawed or broken systems, then it stands to reason that people can also fix these flawed systems. And I hear what you're doing with JIL and, and uh, being a part of the solution for a lot of these, these systems issues. Are you seeing in our social, cultural, political moment today, is there enough either incentive or sheer force of will of change makers or public demand or political resolve to see these systems change and stay changed? It has to take place in places that don't require legislation and politics. I mean, I I am not very hopeful about politics in America. Mm. One of the reasons why we work with prosecutors is they don't actually need to change any laws to be able to make their system better. They've got Mm. a lot of levers. They want to make it better then they can coordinate with the police. And if you get police departments on board, they've got levers and the defense bar has levers and judges have levers. But we, we often we often worry about it, you know, and, and, and our, our solutions are often so extreme. There, there's a saying in uh, systems thinking that our system is perfectly designed to achieve 
the outcomes it's achieving right now, right? If you think of, if you think of a system truly as a system, it's producing exactly the outputs that it's supposed to do. And so if you don't like the outputs, you have to change the system. But there's another line of thinking that systems are not just the sum of its parts. They're actually the products of their interactions. And so if you really want to move a system forward, you've got to look at the places where people are interacting and those interactions are leading to suboptimal results, whether that's in how a case comes in the system or why the police are the first responders to mental health when it should be a mental health person. And if we can begin to change those interactions, well, then we're going to get the outcomes that we want. And there's plenty of places where, where those actors are ready to figure out something else. One of the things that has surprised me is, is to meet people who, in my mind, have so much power and to see how disempowered they actually feel. Because part of, part of what we have to do is recognizing each of us have access to relationships. Each of us have access to levers of power. How are we using those relationships to ensure that those levers are used for good, not evil? And that's on each of us to figure out. Jared Fishman is the author of Fire on the Levy, The Murder of Henry Glover and the Search for Justice After Hurricane Katrina. It's available wherever you get your books. I highly recommend you pick it up and check it out. You can find Jared and learn more about Justice Innovation Lab at justiceinnovationlab.org. Jared, thank you so much for your work, for your time, for your dedication to civil rights and to, to social justice. I'm really grateful that you exist in the world, and I really appreciate your time and education today. Thank you. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. And thanks, listeners, for tuning in. And thank you for listening to this episode of The New Story Is. My name is Dave Ursillo. Please rate and review our show, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and Spotify to help other listeners find our show and know that it's truly worth listening to. We work real hard to bring you these interviews. We hope you've been enjoying the new content we've been delivering up to you weekly. Stick around. Stay tuned for more interviews coming down the pike. Until next time, dear listener, thank you for listening. Story on.